Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Zachary Tipton with me. Zachary is the founder of Tipton. The company makes eyewear and other vinyl products. When you think of Tipton eyewear, think cool, think fashion. Think stuff that famous people wear. Tipton is a company of 15 people. Their products are sold in about 300 locations worldwide, from the USA to Europe to Brazil to Japan. Zachary's goal is to grow Tipton to $1 million of revenue this year. Alton John recently bought the entire Tipton collection at a store in London. Zachary will also share the story of getting naked to make a customer happy. You don't want to miss that. This customer is a very, very famous person. Zachary is born in the USA, but he's running his business from Hungary, Budapest. That's where Tipton is based. I'm very excited to have Zachary on Success Harbor today. Welcome. Thank you for being here, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me, George. I have read that you have made your first glasses in 1998. Most people just go out and buy a pair of glasses, but you actually ended up making them yourself. Why? Uh, this was actually a decision simply because I was in university and uh, my part-time job was working at a, at a carpentry shop. And uh, I went into an eyeglass store because it turned out that I needed glasses and of course, I chose the most expensive pair, and when I took a closer look at it, how it was made, I, I couldn't understand why in the world it uh, cost so much when it was so simple to make, so I decided to try it out myself. Okay, and so you made your first pair of glasses. How long did that take you? Um, it, well, you know, I mean, to get, the, get it, to get it down right took me quite a while to figure out the technique and how to get all the um, angles and designs right. I mean, to make the first, I guess, the object that resembled a frame took maybe a one or two days, but... It took me months to develop, um, I guess, a working product that I, could, that I ended up actually uh, selling to friends and, and family. Mm -hmm. So after you made your first glasses, what told you that there might be a business there? Um, what happened was actually that I, I developed this uh, design quite unwittingly, but I developed this design that could be very easily customized. And um, I guess the word spread and turned out that a lot of people had these very specific needs that they couldn't find in eyeglass stores. So I kept getting referrals from friends, um, from people that, that were looking for something unique or something that, that they couldn't find in the store. And my design, I could modify it very easily. And that's just kind of how it started. And I'd get these one-off orders from people looking at, for example, one of, one of my customers, first customers was a, a rock climber. And he needs some lenses that would go really high above his eyebrows. So when he looked up the cliff, he would still have a lens in front of his eyes. Mm -hmm. um, so but, customization was a big part of it? So yeah, something like... Was, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. was a huge, huge part of, of beginning it. And then I wanted to branch out of... Because this is a, a metal frame, basically. And it was a very uh, limiting in its, in its potential uh, for design. And I wanted to break out of that and create something different. Uh, so I started mm -hmm. experimenting with different plastics just for the fun of it, and this is like 99, 1999, 2000, and I was going through all these plastics I could buy at the hardware store and at mm -hmm. various, you know, dealers that, you know, that you just have in America, this in Seattle at the time, mm -hmm. and and one day I was in the garage, which was a workshop at the time, and uh, trying to make something different, something out of plastic, and I looked into it at the corner where my father's old record collection was collecting dust, and I had this eureka moment of, well, why don't I try this material? And then that's mm -hmm. how this idea came of making eyewear out of vinyl records. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've read uh, on one of the websites that you said that you started with metal, but somehow that wasn't the right fit. So why why was metal not the right fit? I don't know if it wasn't exactly the right fit. I loved it. I enjoyed it. But uh, in, on one hand, it's great. But on the other hand, it's also kind of limiting to work with just one material. Um, I was in Seattle at the time, and Seattle's not very, I guess, well-known, or and there's no eyeglass production there. So it's very limiting as to what you can do. Since there's no materials, there's no technology for for making mm-hmm. frames either out of metal or plastic. So uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to diversify. I, I guess diversify my design. I had these ideas that um, didn't require metal, so I started experimenting with plastics. And mm-hmm. now, and now it looks like we're going back into metals. We're working on a new collection, and I guess in a way, it's going to be back to the root. Mm-hmm. So initially, you made about ten glasses per month, and uh, I read that you sold about you know about three of those per month. Uh, what were you thinking at that point? Were you thinking that, wow, this is the beginning of something, or, wow, this is kind of a hobby, I, I make a little bit of money on the side? Uh, were you happy with the, the, the result at that point? I, I think, you know, I was 18 at the time, and no knowledge of anything, no knowledge of business and production or anything. And I, uh, one of my, my big passions is making things. It's creating something, taking an idea and making it real taking an, an abstract idea and making it a tangible product or or something like that. And um, my business knowledge I read that it limited. took you like about, I read that it took you, this whole period took about three years, right? Um, this kind so of... I, I uh, 2001, yeah, that, that was, yeah, it took me about three years. And... Um, so, you know, and, and I'm asking this because there are a lot of people that start a business today. And if they don't succeed in six months, you know, they think they're they failed. So, you know, I, I, I like to focus on this first few years. Uh, what were some of your thoughts about your business? Were you like, oh, you know, this is okay, whatever happens now, or, well, this is kind of my, my, my you know, paying my dues, or what were you thinking about your business? Or were you even thinking of this as a business? Um, I don't think that I really started thinking about this as a business until a bit later down the line, until I got involved in with a, a real factory. Um, for the most part, it was just a very serious, uh, all-encompassing uh, hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And, yeah, I you, just want to make money. Did you enjoy the whole process? Uh, did you enjoy this process? Or oh, I, was loved it it. A fr- I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I think for me the main main point wasn't to get rich. Uh, the main point was to do something I like and I love and make a living out of it and, and see if, hey, this is so great. I love doing this. I wonder if I could make a couple of bucks, you know, and support myself mm-hmm. doing this. Yeah. And the, the, the point wasn't to get rich. I mean, uh, I think everybody, uh, you know, me and myself included, hey, it'd be great if I could do this. I could buy a Mercedes in a couple of years or whatever, but um, that mm-hmm. wasn't the driving goal behind uh, the, the persistence. Yeah, because a lot of times we talk that some people, you know, get in business because, you know, motivated by money, but it's just hard to go on for three years, right, Uh, being motivated by money. You really have to like what you do. You have to enjoy it. And like you mentioned, you know, you have to be happy with selling three glasses a month for a while. And if if you're not, it's going to be tough to succeed. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I think if you're if one of your main motivations is money, then you're gonna be hard pressed finding success. So let's talk. Uh, go ahead, George, go ahead. 
So how long did it take you to actually ramp up production? So this period of kind of experimenting and making a few glasses here and there and selling a few more uh, lasted about three years. And so how long did it take you to say, you know what, I need help? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, let me put it to you this way. Uh, I made these prototypes out of, these, out of my vinyl record, my father's vinyl records, and I took them uh, as you know, internet was brand new practically in 2000. And uh, I found this eyeglass factory in Hungary where I took my prototypes. And that's where I started getting serious because they loved the idea. They had just stepped out of socialism. They owned the factory. They didn't have a market, nor did they have products, nor did they have salespeople. Um, and they saw huge potential in this. Um, the downside, which I didn't realize, is that they had huge debt and huge bills to pay. So consequently, uh, little project like mine wasn't ever a priority for them. It was always on the back burner, but yeah, 21, 20 years old at the time. So having a factory mm-hmm. make my prototype was, was a huge success for me and, mm-hmm. and that validated my belief in, in myself. Though back to your original question, <laughs> there wasn't much income that I generated from that, but a huge, huge mm-hmm. learning curve. Okay. So that partnership then, uh, you know, were you able to partner with the company for a while or, or yeah, yeah. We, or not we, part- we partnered up until 2005 uh, and we developed mm-hmm. the, the production method uh, that that we use this very day to make vinylized. But uh, at the same time, which I think is equally valuable is I was able to develop a market and I was a student. I didn't have any any expenses. I didn't have a family, so I was able to, uh, I guess, do a lot of things I would not be able to do now or that many people would not. It was a luxury, you know, to basically be able to mm-hmm. buy mm-hmm. Uh, train tickets and travel Europe searching for clients. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a huge... It's, it's nice, nice to be able to take some of the pressure off of you, you know, if, especially in the beginning when you can just do something because you love it, but there's not a huge pressure on making, you know, X amount of money by a, by a deadline or you're going to go out of business pretty much. Or you can't feed your family or, or whatever. You know, I, yeah. I had a scholarship. I lived in a really crummy dorm room and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I rode public transportation. But, you know, mm-hmm. from my, in my perspective, when I was 21, it was a huge adventure to travel around Europe and have yeah. some factory make my designs for me. Uh, granted, I was eating, you know, hot, I know, you know, hot dogs with sausages and bread every day, but you know, yeah. in 21, you can't, yeah. or I couldn't at least. It was that was success to me. Yeah. So, were you able to do uh, or or get any patents, uh, you know, in the in the beginning about the manufacturing, the way you make things, especially if you got manufacturers involved to kind of protect your product. Um, to be honest with you, I, uh, at the moment, um, I have a very low opinion of patents. Um, one. Well, for why is that? I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I have low opinion of the whole patent system, actually. But, but I want to hear your opinion too. Um, well, once I kind of, I mean, just just from what I, I read nowadays, since I've kind of gotten away, because originally one of my big dreams was to be an inventor and to be an inventor. Uh, patents are literally, you know, the lifeblood and what defines being an inventor is creating something that can be patented. Um, I do have a patent um, for something completely different, but my biggest problem was, and this goes back to what we had earlier spoken about, my financial situation when I started, to get a patent costs an inordinate amount of money when you don't have any money. Two, you got to patent it in every country that you want to protect it in. And you also have to pay all the translation fees and all this. So basically, you're shelling out a bunch of money 
but what do you do when somebody infringes on your patent? Now, that costs a bunch more money to protect it. You know, so you're dealing with this huge financial, I guess, to lose. And for me, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I could possibly even conceive of doing. But also, it wasn't worth it because most people thought my idea was quite silly. So it wasn't okay. like I had a huge problem of, of people seeking to steal my idea. Um, at the very mm-hmm. beginning, I was glad to sell a few frames, you know. So there's potential mm-hmm. there, but it wasn't like, you know, somebody's going to come and risk it off because I was one of the very few people who saw, who believed in the potential of this idea. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the challenges with production because your your eyewear, is it all handmade or is it mostly handmade? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, I think once you got to define handmade, um, I think, and this is actually kind of just my personal thing, I think that if you want to call something handmade, it almost literally has to be made in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Now, our, our eyewear is made in Europe. We do try to use machines as much as possible uh, because only with machines can we achieve the high quality that's required okay. to command the price like the price that we command. Um, mm-hmm. As far as handmade goes, yeah, we use CNC machines to cut out the frames. Uh, mm-hmm. We use tumbling machines to tumble them, but the frames are assembled by hand. They are polished mm-hmm. by hand. Uh, they are measured, quality checked, stamped by hand. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're made in small batches, right? So these are not something you order 10,000 of the same thing, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. I couldn't even make them. I couldn't even make that many. Logistically, it's literally impossible simply because of the raw material that we use. Um, mm-hmm. The raw material that we use is not made to order. The raw material that we use is sourced. Um, uh, it's, it's basically a vinyl record. So, uh, our so you're basically buying used vinyl records, or like talk about the sourcing materials a little bit. What what kind of materials are we talking about? What are some of the challenges around that? Um, we started making the frames out of old vinyl records that we pick up at flea markets, uh, mm-hmm. and there's two reasons we stopped doing that. Number one was it's difficult to spend that much time at flea markets buying up records. Two, financially, people really take advantage of the price of their vinyl, so you end up paying inordinate amounts of money for for an old record. The mm-hmm. biggest problem was basically uh, production because if you buy an old vinyl record, maybe it was pressed in France, maybe it was pressed in the UK, maybe it's from 1967, maybe it's from 1987, maybe it's thick, maybe it's thin. You know, there's there's no mm-hmm. consistency mm-hmm. in the material and since it's a plastic it ages. So the biggest problem was concerning uh, production that each and every frame would be completely different from the previous one, making it very difficult to replicate production processes on it. So what we ended up doing, which is a huge stroke of luck, is um, we were able to get in touch with distributors of vinyl and offer mm-hmm. them our services as a recycling center. Oh, wow. Awesome. So yeah. what they do is the vinyl is they cannot sell. They ship to us for recycling. Great. And what's good about this is that a lot of times when you're dealing with distributors, they buy you know, a thousand records of a particular artist and they're unable to sell the last 300 and the last 300 is what we work with. Great. Great. Yeah, that's uh, kind of a great cycle there to, to be able to find that. Um, talk about where your glasses are, are sold. I mean, you do have other products as well, but, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, are, are most of your products uh, eyewear at this point? Because, I, I mean, um, I have looked at... 99% eyewear. We have uh, various okay. other projects that we work with. We make our own cases. Mm-hmm. Um, we mm-hmm. get into uh, luggage and other kind of objects like that, but the bulk of our, our um, revenue is generated by eyewear. Uh, when I started the so, business, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just back, to get back to your question of where these are sold, um, 
the original goal was to to be a wholesaler to to be able to uh, sell to our glass stores. Um, consequently, I, I was you know when I traveled Europe with these um, counterfeit Euro Euro tickets, we I was able to find uh, very nice boutique type uh, stores. And what the very peculiar thing about the eyewear market is that it requires the personal touch of of a, a doctor, an optician to put the prescription lenses and consequently it hasn't been as cannibalized by the internet as say a shoe market or, or many other, other markets. And that's still a core of our business is selling to very high end stores that cater to a discerning market of, of people that want something unique, uh, well made and of high quality into which they can put uh, their lenses with which they can see. So from fairly early on, then, you focused on high-end and uh, going after the higher-end store locations. Exactly, exactly. High-end. So end how do you get – I mean, how, how old were you then, like 20, 20 21, 20? 22, yeah, my early 20s. So when you're like 21 years – like 20, 21, you go into a store, like the same store where, you know, Elton John would go shopping – how do you go in there and say, you know, buy my my eyewear, and you know, <laughs> <It was, laughs> here is what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no magic about it. I, I uh, made a special briefcase, put on my glasses in the briefcase, and I still display. And I was basically a traveling salesman, and uh, I do a lot of cold calling. I try to call them and get an appointment. If I couldn't get an appointment, I'd just walk in and announce myself and try to show it to somebody uh, and try to get them to place an order. And that was basically how it went. Uh, and to this very Did day, you ever get thrown out? Oh yeah, oh yeah, lots of people turned me down. Lots of so, people turned me out. So what happened? That, what what happened then when you got thrown out? Uh, how <laughs> long did it take you to say, you know what? Uh, okay, let's let's go find another place. Or did you feel like a complete loser when that happened? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, a lot of times it was very depressing. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of times I had to get smart and just. Uh, some, uh, now I'm at the point where I can look at an eyeglass store and I'll tell I'll be able to tell if they'll buy my stuff or not. And a lot of oh, it was wow. learning learning the market, you know, because you can't you can't sell to everybody. Most products mm-hmm. cannot be sold to everybody. You know, most products have a very you have to find you have to find your market. You have to know who those people are and how you can target them. So I ended up figuring out what stores would buy my product, and then I, I started specifically targeting them, which, you know, results in a much higher rate of success uh, and a lot. So what are some time. of those things? What are some of those, th- those things? Because you mentioned uh, just a minute ago that now you look at a store and it gives you a pretty good idea how much success you're going to have with them. Can you give us a couple of clues that you learned uh, um, along the way? Yeah, location. Uh, most of my European stores are located in the, the historical center, downtown center of urban areas. So one, it have to be mm-hmm. a city with a bigger population. Two, it have to, the store would have to be located in an urban center. Three, it have to be uh, decorated in such a fashion that was unique, that, that you could tell if the store owner took some time to decorate a store. Three, the products that they were carrying could not be mainstream. Uh, 75% of the products in the stores I carry are from makers similar to myself. So uh, what I do is I basically poach um, addresses from other com- competitors and go to mm-hmm. those stores because I knew if they had bought this one particular brand, there's a much higher chance they'd buy mine. Um, mm-hmm. They cannot be mainstream. Uh, the prices have to be higher, you know, three, mm-hmm. let's say $300 or up usually. Uh, mm-hmm. They cannot be a chain. 
you know. So if there's more mm-hmm. than four locations and uh, yeah, and those guys don't store, make any decisions by themselves. They right? don't make decisions. Uh, they're they're more mass market, yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, if I okay. walk into a store and the owner's not there, and I'm talking to an employee, then there's a much lower chance of me making a sale. <laughs> Uh, okay. Okay. And so, how long did this take you? Did it, was this a matter of weeks, months, years? Uh, give us an idea. Um, that part was a matter of months. So I'd go on a trip once or twice. My first trip, I learned that pretty quick. You know, where not to go, where to go, where to focus my energy. But on the other hand, you know, the markets and markets are always changing. They're growing, shrinking. Different people uh, pick up on it. And what's interesting about our, my market is that it seems to be growing. It's changing. There's more and more stores opening like this and more and more remote locations. So, I mean, once mm-hmm. you, you know, I think and all entrepreneurs have to do this. You have to keep your, you know, fingers on the pulse to, to be aware of the changes and be able to take advantage of them. Yeah. And uh, so how do you do that? Do you go to trade shows? Do you talk to other manufacturers of glasses? I exactly. mean, eyewear? Both, both yeah. Um, trade uh-huh. shows have become our lifeblood. Um, our company is very small, so we're not too interested in working with representatives or distributors. Um, it's very expensive, and they're they're into selling as many as possible to whoever wants to buy. That's not my goal mm-hmm. here. Uh, trade shows, consequently, have become a, a very um, important um, way for us to generate revenue because we can mm-hmm. showcase our product, we can target our audience, we can display our brand, show our brand, and give it, because we don't advertise, you know, so we can't... Mm-hmm. For you can't afford time. it at, at this size. Time. Yeah, it's just you know most small businesses. Yeah, you know, I don't care what anybody says. You can't really afford it. You have to rely on the quality of your product or service, and mm-hmm. also word of mouth marketing mm-hmm. and your own own uh, guerrilla type of sales that you can pull off basically. Exactly. So let's exactly. talk. Let's talk about how many locations sell your I, – I read about 170, but I don't know how old that article was. Um, well, that's a couple of years old then because we uh, currently have a bit over 300 now, and we're opening mm-hmm. new accounts, I'd say, weekly. And they are where? What part of the world are they? Um, Europe is our, the EU. The European Union is probably our biggest market, but the fastest-growing market right now is uh, North America, United States. Okay. And so – how strategic are you about growth? I mean, uh, you know, your business, uh, you, you incorporated in, in Hungary, I think, um, in 2004 or five, something like that, yeah, right? 2004. So how strategic are you about, uh, you know, developing new markets? I mean, you know, it start, start, sounded like you started in Europe, but you're expanding into the U.S. What does your expansion into the U.S. look like now? Um, I'd have to tell you that we're becoming very discriminatory with who we do business with. Um, we're trying to build a brand. Previously, I'd be happy if anybody bought my stuff. I was just so okay. Curious, so why know? aren't you not? Why are you disc? Why do you discriminate now more? What What have you learned? Um, what I've learned uh, a couple of things. One, if you're building a brand, you have to make sure you're selling in the right places, and it's up to you know whatever brand you're building to determine what the right places are. But what I've noticed in my market is that people want exclusivity. My product's exclusive. Um, this isn't something that I had wanted or even considered. It's just the way that this developed. Now, if people want exclusivity, how do you make something exclusive? I mean, so what we decided to start doing is, one, if we get a contact, a lead, then we do a bunch of research on them and see what other all the previous things, what brands are they selling. If I call up the store, does the owner answer? Can I get a hold of the owner? What's their price point? 
But what I notice is if we sell to the wrong store, somebody just wants to buy us once and then never do business with us again, then you ruin your chances in that particular area of getting the right store. The store that's going to give you long-term business. The store that's going to buy from you again and again and build my business as well as theirs. Uh, and it's always easy to chase the easy dollar. But mm-hmm. in the long term... So it's more about a long-term vision and it's more about building that relationship from the beginning as opposed to, oh, can I sell 100 more glasses today and tomorrow and all that? It's more like, can we grow together in a way? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what we're doing now is... Um, Seeing if we can how we can develop the personal relationships because uh, we've been I guess restructuring or focusing more on the clients that we have and building the relationship with them instead of opening new clients. Mm-hmm. So, I- so are are you also selling directly to consumers or or it's pretty much uh, through these uh, uh, store locations? Ninety nine percent of our business is is wholesale stores. We have a very small portion that happens on our website. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a strategic decision as well, um, mainly because our distribution is limited, but the reach of the internet is far. Uh, so we get mm-hmm. lots of requests in very remote locations where we just simply do not have a store. Consequently, they can buy the frames online. However, mm-hmm. <laughs> back to the question of exclusivity, what we did is that the internet is not exclusive. Um, so if somebody has a store in Paris and we're selling online, they're going to have a big problem with that because they're not exclusive anymore. Somebody can basically do showrooming, go to their store, and then purchase it online. So what we did is we only offer a fraction of our collection online. And uh, if somebody tries to purchase from an area where we have a retail location, uh, we do not ship there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough challenge. Have you considered creating another brand for online or that would take too much away from your, your existing business? I think it would take too much away from the existing business and two, how am I going to build up another brand with a unique product like this that's not going to kind of destroy the other brand? Um, so, yeah. You know. Yeah, no, no, uh, that, that that makes sense because I mean it seems like that that's a big challenge for a lot of uh, manufacturers. Is you know are they going to sell direct to consumer? Are they going to go through these strategic partners and resellers? And how do you do how do you do both without cannibalizing one or the other? So that that's yeah. kind of a, Those are a, big a challenge. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about. Uh, can you talk about revenue at all? I have read about uh, under two hundred thousand uh, U.S. because uh, it was in like Hungarian foreign. So I mm-hmm. did a little bit of an exchange. Can you share a little bit about um, the revenue numbers with us? Um. Yeah. Definitely. I'm not. Uh. Well, basically, I mean, it's changing. Uh, it's going up. Uh. It's an international mm-hmm. business. So there's all these uh little things, exchange rates mainly, and uh that mm-hmm. really uh influence the uh, revenues, but basically now I think we're moving. I my goal for this year is to move a million million dollars this year. So it's uh, quite a bit up from mm-hmm. the article you had read previously, but that's the goal. I'd say that's and, probably a thirty percent growth. Okay. So, and and what is your strategy for that? Are you doing more trade shows? Are you doing more of the same that you have been doing, or are you doing different things? Um, I'd say more of the same, more intensely. Uh, we're investing heavily in, in marketing, but not in a traditional sense. So uh, last year we had done four trade shows. This year we're talking six trade shows, maybe seven. 
um, mm-hmm. investing uh, more heavily in marketing, but not in the general marketing sense. We're going to pay for an ad, but uh, uh-huh. marketing the sense that we're going to make unique products for unique people and mm-hmm. see if we can work on collaborations. So when you're when you're this uh, this small, I mean, I read on your website you have about fifteen, a team of about fifteen. 15 is that, yeah. is that That's about, about right? So, so when you're that small, or actually any time, you have to be very careful about how you spend your time. And it sounds to me that you've been doing a lot of the business development. Um, how are you able to scale that? Are you able to put in some systems to to be able to scale that a little bit better? Or are, were you able to hire somebody to do what you've been doing? Or how how do you go forward from the, from here? Um, well, I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think a lot of people suffer from the very same dilemma. Um, what I'm trying to do is, uh, and, it's, and it's, I think it's a lot of it is just dealing with people, with my employees in particular, uh, trying to get them to focus on doing what we do best and trying to get them to focus on doing what only we can do. Uh, and employees, or mine, mine at least, we, they seem to have a difficult time really focusing on the only thing that we can do and figuring out other ways to do those things, namely outsourcing, bookkeeping, for example. You know, Do we want to be keeping our own books? Are we a bookkeeping mm-hmm. company? Are we, you know what I mean? So, so asking these questions yeah. and, and requesting my employees who are in charge of this to find solutions uh, to these problems mm-hmm. and not worry about saving a couple of dollars a month on the bookkeeper, you know? More yeah, expensive for me to, to, to keep you employed doing something that somebody else can do. Is this worth it for mm-hmm. me? I mean, they have to ask these questions daily. Ask themselves and ask yeah. their colleagues, hey, is this the best way to do this, you know? Um, on the other hand... You know, what are those things that you don't really want to have other people do, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it seems to me that uh, even though you're way beyond being just the one guy in the garage making uh, eyewear, you know, you're way beyond that. But, but, But making that initial connection, building, starting to build those partnerships is really kind of the lifeblood of the business. So mm-hmm. when are you going to relinquish that? I know personally me as an entrepreneur, that would be one of the last things that I would feel comfortable, you know, hiring for. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, not everybody is, feels that way, but, you know, I thought that was important for me to ask that question. Um, can you rephrase that, please? Well, so basically what I'm what I'm saying is that to build that initial relationship with with your resellers, for example, mm-hmm. the stores mm-hmm. that are selling your product, is is yeah. really one of the most crucial parts of your business. It's one of the most essential parts of the business. So, to 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 try to hire for that is almost impossible to for a long time, I think. And, and but if you can hack that, then you can really really grow your business exponentially. Well, I mean that's the, that is a. Uh, uh, core goal for this year and you're definitely right and I've learned the hard way about hiring the wrong people and 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 uh, giving them too much at the very beginning you know and having relationships with my clients ruined and it's happened before um, and unfortunately I, w- I wasn't aware that, that, that this is such a big deal uh, now that I know this I'm going about this in a completely different manner and yeah this is probably going to be one of the last things that I, I uh I guess outsource the handoff to one of my employees, um, but you're definitely right uh, about scaling this. And I haven't quite figured out how most effectively to do this. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy thing. I think it's a very, very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, my next question is, how do you stay original? Because, you know, a lot of businesses, like, for example, a lot of service businesses, they just have to worry about servicing their customers, like attorneys, accountants, and all these people. You know, as long as you do a good job, you're okay. But in your business, you have to, you have to stay cool, right? I mean, the yeah, product has yeah. to look great. It has to be original. It has to be unique. So one question is, how do you fight others ripping your stuff off? Um, yeah, let's let's start on that because that's a, that's a yeah. very common thing for any kind of product business. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you know, George. I mean, I've been getting really pissed off lately. Um, I've I've been we've been generating competitors, you know, and <laughs> since I started this in 2004, you know, the idea was so unique, so original that nobody was touching it at all. And now I see this year, I've already noticed knockoffs coming off, other companies doing the same thing, ripping our marketing off, you know, like literally copying my website, my photos and putting it up and claiming it mm -hmm. as their own. Uh, mm -hmm. On the one hand, yeah, that feels really bad. On the other hand, what's very funny for me about it is I, I, I feel that I finally I'm being validated that this idea is worth pursuing. Uh, also, it gives me credibility to say, that they're, I mean, I'm not the only one anymore. However, I am the best. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so it gives yeah. us some um, sense of security to the customer to know that, hey, this isn't some, you know, snake oil or something like that. There's other companies doing this, so it's a valid idea and other people believe in it. Um, the only way I think to combat, combat this is, is to stay, you know, one step ahead. And uh, Yeah, I, because, uh, so how how do you do that? Because, I, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of people that have not started a business yet, they're kind of looking for the silver bullet. You know, like how do you how do you start a business? What are the steps and all that? But then you find that you know all those steps they're not really secrets. You know, all those steps have been out there forever. Oh, and yeah. you know, a thousand years ago, it it took the same thing that what it takes today to to build a business. Yet a lot of people can't hack it. So. So, uh, you know, using the same logic, what can you do? And this is not just for your business, but in, in general, like, what can we do to stay ahead of all those other guys that are trying to take shortcuts and just copy instead of creating something new? Uh, what has been working for you? Or how do you fight it on a daily basis? Um, I'd say number one is persistence. Uh, number two is to keep keep going, keep inventing, keep doing one one thing that kind of turned me on to this is that you know two of these companies that I mentioned previously they're literally copying our marketing and I was wondering why in the world are you copying my marketing how come you don't figure out your own marketing your own photo setup you know literally my stuff is out there one on one and and I came to the realization that we probably defined a category and I realized this just by thinking about mm, other advertisements and how for example car advertisements most of them almost always look the same. And that's probably because that's the best way to advertise in that particular medium. And it was defined by somebody way back when, when they figured this all out. And consequently, it became an industry standard that when you're doing a particular type of advertisement, it's going to look a particular way because that's the most effective way, although not the most unique anymore, to communicate the idea. So I kind of, I guess, maybe made myself feel better by saying that, hey, we defined the way to photograph this particular product and communicate it on a two-dimensional surface. So whoever comes up with anything after this is going to have to copy us because there's no better way to do it because it took me 10 years to figure out this method and it took them five minutes to copy it. 
And, and it's it's very complex for other. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, it's one thing to copy something, right? But then there is also quality. There is also fulfillment. There is also support. So there is just so many other things that go into business that are not easy to copy, right? Because you could give something to a Chinese manufacturer and they can they can they can make it, but to make that great quality and then to have you know to build a brand around that is such such a complex and George, thing. George, this ties back into your one of your original questions about patents and why I don't particularly believe in them. Now, had I gone through and patented this, I probably only would have had money to patent it in one country. Now, once you mm -hmm. do a patent, uh, the secret's out. You know what I mean? Uh, I, yeah. I maybe yeah. only be able to patent my process of how I go through and do this lamination. The secret would be out, right? Now, mm -hmm. I don't have yeah. the money to go through and patent it in the United States and Canada and Mexico, and then you know the list just goes on with the amount of markets that are really out there for this type of product. However, whoever would be interested in ripping me off, there's nothing stopping them from opening their little factory in whatever country and selling wherever, and I would not want to have a patent in that country. I could not get a patent in that country because the time ran out. Three, I wouldn't even have the money to enforce my patent. So I would have lost all this simply by being an ego egotist and getting the patent. You know what I mean? So once, I think, is, is also being careful what sort of information you share and how you share it. You know, and, mm -hmm. and I don't particularly mm -hmm. believe in the power of a patent to, to protect one for that very purpose, for that very reason. Yeah, it's it's another thing that a lot of rookie entrepreneurs do is they try to be too secretive about things. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they're not going to talk to anyone without signing an NDA and this and that. But, you know, I don't think, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there are a whole lot of secrets anymore almost about anything. So it really comes down to execution. You know, how really how well can you execute yeah. on your idea? There's a, isn't there a saying that, you know, a, a bad idea, well executed, a hundred times better than a good idea, poorly executed. Um, but also I think a lot of, and entrepreneurs, people, they, I don't know how to put this because I was once like that myself, but they're a bit, think too much of themselves. Um, they they are probably the only ones that believe as strong in their idea as they do. And nobody else is particularly interested in ripping them off or stealing their idea until it's too late. You yeah. know, and... Yeah, and uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Um, I just have a couple of a uh, couple of uh, more questions. Uh, num number one is uh, I I heard a story about Elton John and a naked picture <laughs> on uh, eyewear. Can you share the story quickly? What yeah, that was yeah, about? Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, that's uh, probably the funniest stories I think uh, concerning our company. Uh, we come up with this line where we were recycling old movie strips uh, and. Somewhere along the way, I had gotten a hold of some old erotic films from the 80s, and we started making this collection uh, with, you know, very nice erotic ladies cut from these films and put into the temples, and I sold uh, quite a few frames to a store in London. And at this particular store, a very nice location, was where uh, uh, Elton's, I guess, current husband was shopping, and he had gone in. They had showed them frames, and now obviously he's not too interested in buying a frame with naked ladies for Elton. So they called me up and asked me if I could do one with a naked man, to which I replied, "Not a problem at all." And I found uh, I, I couldn't find any naked men. Number one, I didn't realize that that was so rare. Um, so what I did is I shipped them a frame uh, using a deodorant commercial of a naked torso, and the guy sprang deodorant on himself. To which they replied, "This is not what they're looking for." And they need the part, 
between the belly button and the knees. So, <laughs> so I had, I think, literally two weeks to see if I could find any any footage of that sort, uh, which proved to be literally impossible in that amount of time. So what I ended up doing is I ended up buying some uh, uh, film and shooting a selfie, and I put that into the frame, and uh, that's the frame he wears this very day. Oh, wow. That's a great story. <laughs> so you Excellent. have to do everything to make the customer happy, but that you don't get abused. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, how did you get written up by the New York Times? Uh, I read that that, that was kind of a, a big turning point for your brand about 10 years ago yeah. when the New York Times uh, picked you up. Um, how did that happen? That was, that was actually, uh, that, was, that came through uh, a trade show. And what I would do back in the day, uh, when I went to trade shows is I wouldn't pay for a booth because I didn't have that kind of money. I'd basically show my uh, collection in the bar at the trade show, clandestine-like, and I had met up, somehow the word of spread, uh, and a very well-known uh, New York distributor, have you heard about me? And uh, we met in the bar, and I showed him the collection, and he placed a huge order, and I shipped it to him. And his method of business was uh, to get the people talking and to get them to come to the store. So instead of investing in uh, in anything, what he invested in was PR. And he hired a very mm -hmm. talented press company who uh, found the most interesting stories about the eyewear that they were particularly carrying at that time, and he would get them written up in any and every magazine, and that's how he would draw business to himself. Uh, and that's how we were able to get into the New York Times. Mm -hmm. That makes uh, that makes sense. Uh, what is your goal for for Tipton for the next? Because uh, I don't like to think five years. That's way that's, too. Yeah, but let's early. say in the last six months, six months to six to twelve months. What what are your goals for Tipton? Um, our goals now now uh, the trade show season is over, uh, and that means that our business literally dries up. Uh, everybody's made their purchases, all the orders have been shipped, and summer comes. Uh, what we do mm -hmm. uh, during this time is reallocate our resources and concentrate on development, uh, product development, marketing development, uh, new product design, and design. That kind of stuff. exactly, exactly. So our next goal for the next six months uh, is to develop new products, new concepts, new ways to tell our story. Uh, keep one step ahead of the competition and then get ready for next year with stock of the new product and also begin developing a new collection because at the end of the day, uh, most businesses in the fashion world are about entertainment. Fashion is entertainment. And if we can't keep our customers entertained, they don't call it a trade show for nothing. You literally have to put on a show. We have to keep our customers mm -hmm. entertained. And by that, you really have to put in your time to develop something that's going to capture their imagination and keep the business going and put us in the forefront of their of their uh, purchasing needs. Well, uh, Zach, I really appreciate you uh, coming on Success Harbor today and uh, share the story of Tipton and uh, hands off to you uh, to actually try to make something because, it, you know, nowadays everybody wants to start the next Facebook or Twitter and, you know, if you don't, if you don't blow up to be a billion dollar company in two years, then you know you <laughs> they later, just yeah. don't have any interest. But but I think it's really awesome that you know there are there are people like you out there that are trying to create 
new products, new ways of making things and uh, building actual real products from, from scratch. How can people connect with you or find out more about Tipton? Um, number one, I'd recommend visiting our site. We have vinylize.com, um, and that's dedicated solely to uh, products that we make out of vinyl records. But if you're interested in any new collections that we come up with, we're coming out now with a collection that recycles uh, bullets. Uh, and if you're interested oh, wow. in keeping an eye on that, I'd recommend checking out tipton.hu, so that's T-I-P-T-O-N.hu as in Hungary. And hopefully we'll have that out. It's planned to be released uh, after the New Year, so in two, next, next year, January. Uh, keep an eye on us that way. And then sign up for a newsletter, and we'll keep you in the loop. And feel free to contact me uh, via my website with any uh, questions that you may have. So that's uh, for everybody out there. It's Vinylize. That's V-I-N-Y-L-I-Z-E dot com. And uh, once you have um, uh, the new collection come out, just uh, email it to me. I'll put it in the show notes as well with a link to that. And again, uh, thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Success Harbor. Hey, and thanks a lot for your time, George, and have a great week. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. All right.